Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the amazing love that you have poured out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can come together to celebrate his first coming and look forward to his second coming this morning. Father, we lift our hearts up to you in worship and in praise and thanksgiving. And regardless of the circumstances which surround us, whether good or bad, we recognize, Lord, that uh, one day in your kingdom, everything will be perfect. We long for that day, not just for, for, for perfection, Lord, but to see your face. And when all of our worship experiences and our attempts at interpreting your word and will all come to fruition, Lord, when we hear the word spoken from your very lips, and we're able to see the beauty of your countenance. What great grace, Lord God, that we have received. So focus our eyes on that today, Lord. Help us to understand what you're trying to tell us through this word. May your Holy Spirit be alive in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. William Bennett, a former United States Secretary of Education, said these words years and years ago. He said, I submit to you that the real crisis of our time is spiritual. That what afflicts us is a corruption of the heart and a turning away of the soul. He said, nothing has been more consequential in this societal demise than large segments of American society privately turning away from God. And to turn things around, there must come a widespread personal spiritual renewal, unquote. Now, those words spoken years ago could have easily been uttered yesterday, couldn't they have been? Think about the power of that statement that Bill Bennett has slung an arrow so sharply and hit the target so accurately that you almost don't know you've been pierced by it. He says, and by the way, I believe this is aimed as much at those who profess to being religious as those who don't, that what afflicts us is a corruption of the heart and a turning away of the soul. Now that statement kind of hits me. I don't know if it hits you, but it hits me hard and it sounds so deliberate, so intentional, the way that it's spoken here. A spiritual deterioration is not something that happens innocently while we stand by oblivious to our own condition, uh, we're all convicted by the hard truth of that statement that he made, that the erosion of our spiritual life is the result of calculated corruption and the consequence of a conscious turning away. Now that will incite some major discussion in your small group, or it should. He's saying we make the choices. And no amount of rationalization can change that fact. When Jesus charged the Apostle John to write to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, his complaint against that church was, as you probably recall, that they had left their first love, right? They had left their first love. 
And the Greek word that's used there means to leave, to leave alone, to forsake, to neglect. And so many people misquote the Lord and contend that this church in Ephesus had lost their first love. But don't miss what the Lord is saying there. Losing something implies that it was an accident. You forgot about it. You dropped it accidentally. You misplaced something. You lost track of it. Forsaking something, however, is quite different. It indicates intentional activity. Now, there's a world of difference between losing your wife in a crowd and leaving her for another woman, isn't there? One of my sons was notorious for losing things when he was a teenager, clothing, books, watches, once during halftime at a football game, I gave him a $10 bill to get something at the French fry booth. And between the time that he left the bleachers and ordered the food, a total of about 25 yards from where we were sitting, he had lost the money. Somehow he dropped it along the way. Now that's understandable, right? I was a tad disappointed at that, but, you know, I couldn't be mad really. It would have been a whole different story, however, if he had rolled up the bill and he just threw it away in the trash can on his way over there. Now, last week, as we observed the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at a passage from the book of Malachi, a minor prophet, a sneak preview, so to speak, of the events surrounding Christ's second Advent we looked at. And through a deeper study of this prophetic book, it becomes clear that the people of Malachi's day had basically done what we've just been talking about. They had left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. Spiritual erosion had eaten away at the nation to the point where the hearts of the leaders were corrupt and the souls of the people were turned away from God. And the parallels that can be drawn between Malachi's day and our own day are too astounding to ignore. Now, many of us would have to admit that we are well acquainted with people close to us, possibly, who have either left their first love or are in the process of dangerously making that choice. Some of us would have to even admit that we might be struggling with the temptation of that dangerous pull with everything that's going on in the world around us. The fallout surrounding COVID-19 dilemma has brought out some very, very deep spiritual issues, hasn't it? Many people from the pulpit to the pew have become tired of what seems like religious routine. And they're exasperated with ministry, frustrated with others, and cynical about the church. That they find themselves questioning God a lot. And they may discover that they're a little lethargic about spiritual things, which is resulting possibly in a tranquilized faith. In fact, they may so desperately want relief from this treadmill that they begin to consciously turn away from God and towards something that they know might be damaging to them. And soon they find that their joy is seeping from their souls and they're tempted to embrace the quickest fix that they can find. And if someone dare try to help them or lovingly confront them, well, it's met with harshness and anger. Now, if you're in that spot or if your heart is breaking for someone who is, I want you to take a moment with me and let's pray that God would open up 
their hearts and open us up to what he wants to tell us through the prophet Malachi this morning as we move on. Let's just take another moment and pray, if we would. Father in heaven, there are so many people around us that have become in danger of leaving their first love. There's so many people out in the world that are searching like crazy for a love that only Christ can give. Father, we pray this morning that you would quicken our hearts and make us attentive to what you want to say to us, Lord. So we don't just immerse ourselves in in superficial joy of the season, but the true joy of the season, which is found in Jesus Christ and in his salvation. And sometimes that comes in a very, very difficult circumstance. And so, Father, if we know people around us that are in those places, we pray, Lord God, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to be able to speak into their lives in a loving and compassionate way. Because your love, Lord God, is bold love. It is bold love. And you have passed it on to us to pass on to others. Open our hearts now to this word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Malachi's message is pretty straightforward. When religious deterioration happens in in lives, radical renovation must occur in hearts. Okay? Simply put, our relationship with God needs to be redefined. Redefined. That's what... What's going on here in Malachi as we, as we open it up? Sometimes the most important thing that a person ha- who has turned away from the things of God needs is a reminder that God loves them. Put that first and foremost in your mind and turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. The most important thing that a person who has turned away from the things of God needs is a reminder that God loves loves them. That's a simple statement, right? Simple to to do, right? Not really. Not always. It's not always easy to remind somebody in the midst of sin and pain that God truly loves them, is it? And it was no picnic for Malachi either. I would classify it, to borrow a phrase, as a bold move. A bold move. Malachi's message was a bold one here. And it started with three of the boldest words that we have in our English language. What the people of the prophet's day needed to hear, what most people today need to be reminded of, is contained in three simple but bold words from the Lord right here in Malachi 1. The three words, I love you. I love you. You see, God's love is a bold kind of love. And as someone has said, to the extent that we have responded, to the extent that we have surrendered, made the leap, and cried out, I believe in the love of Jesus Christ for me, our lives are transformed. Only when our minds are realigned to the bold love that God has for us will our hearts become redirected toward a different way of life a God-honoring way of living. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, our motives, and our relationships will become radically changed when our minds become radically renewed. That's what Romans 12, 2 says, right? 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. So today, as we sit in the presence of God and each other, I'd like us to take the time to discover just what the bold love of God is like through the eyes of the prophet Malachi. Number one, bold love is undeniable love. It's undeniable love. Look at verses 1 and 2, the first part of verse 2 of Malachi 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. As I said, the Hebrew grammar is such that these words can be translated into the present tense. In other words, God literally is saying here, I love you. Talk about bold love. In no other religion on the face of the earth do we find such intimate and personal communication from God. There is no hidden meaning in the Hebrew word. The word for love in Hebrew is much like the word for love in English. It means to have a deep affection for. It means to have an ardent inclination toward someone or something with tenderness and intense affection. In the Old Testament, the word is used on numerous occasions to describe the deep delight and intimacy of personal affection. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 22.2, it is used to describe Abraham's intense love for Isaac, his only son, which emphasizes the extreme sacrifice Abraham was willing to make to obey the Lord to sacrifice him. The Lord said to him, take now your son, your only son whom you love. In Leviticus chapter 19, In verses 18 and 34, it describes, the use of the word there describes the personal and practical responsibility that we have toward our neighbor. In those verses, you'll find the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, this kind of love is the basis of our relationship with an absolute God. The great commandment of the Old Testament is to what? You remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love, your, love the Lord absolutely. In Psalm 47 and verse 4, the word is the definitive characteristic of God's relationship with Jacob, one of love. And in Psalm 119, it is used eight times to vividly portray the spiritual, emotional, and personal delight the psalmist experiences in his heart for God's word. I love thy law. One of the great tragedies of American life is that fact that so many American men, perhaps a majority, choke on the words, I love you. Now that's changing more and more depending upon the community that you find yourself involved in. I find that a lot of the guys in the Fayette Baptist Church community are more than happy to tell each other they love them. I think that's testimony of the great men's ministry that we've had. But I think in the Northeast, generally speaking, you know, they choke on the words. Men choke on those words. 
Many men are like the old Mainer, married 40 years, who remarked, I love my wife so much, sometimes I can hardly keep from telling her so. I mean, to come right out and say to somebody, I love you, that's a bold move, isn't it? Especially when it involves other men. Guys, when was the last time you told your dad you loved him if he's still alive? When was the last time you told your grown son that you love him? Or maybe your best friend? Another great American tragedy is when people say it so flippantly that it means nothing. That's the other side of the coin, right? But God's not like us, is he? He tells us boldly, and he means every single word of it sincerely. And by the way, this verse isn't the first place in the Bible that God boldly declares his love for his people. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 4, reads like this, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Very clear. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. You see, love is at the heart of God's covenant relationship with his people. Whether Israel or the church that you're talking about. And if it was that apparent in the Old Testament, how much more is it declared for us in the New Testament? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, listen to it out of the message. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. In John chapter 15 and verse 13, Jesus said these famous words, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And who can forget John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. These bold statements of God's bold love ought to give us a renewed understanding of God's true nature as a father, as our father. As George Malone writes, quote, he said, he is not a frustrated drill sergeant who is always barking out orders. He's not an anxious mother always demanding perfection without ever assuring us that we are loved. God, when he speaks to us, always speaks in the indicative before moving to the imperative. Simply stated, God always speaks to us in terms of his forgiveness, his power, and his acceptance, help, and love before he ever makes demands of us. Unquote. I like that. 
Now that's important because here in Malachi, the people are reminded of the gospel of God's love before they are ever confronted with the reality of their sin. I love the way it comes out right in the first two verses. I love you, God says to them. Of course, then he's going to tell them a whole bunch of things that they've done wrong. But he's assuring them of his love first. See, if our hearts are going to be renovated and moved into a deeper, more vital relationship with the Lord, then the first thing that we need to be reminded of is how much God loves us. God's love for us is a bold kind of love. And he comes right out and he boldly proclaims it. But, secondly, bold love is often unbelievable love. I don't mean, oh, that's unbelievable. No, I mean that people don't believe it. It's hard to believe. It's unbelievable love. Look at the second part of verse 2 here. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's the people asking God. But God's talking. You say, how have you loved us? The people of Malachi's day had slipped so far down the slope of spiritual erosion that even in the face of God's assurance that he loved them, they would not accept it. That sound like today? They immediately threw it back in the Lord's face. Listen to the way the Living Bible renders this passage. I have loved you very deeply, says the Lord, but you retort, really? When was this? That sounds more contemporary, doesn't it? And the response is pretty astounding, yet we can understand it. When you try and tell people today about the love of God, they look at you sarcastically and they reply, yeah, right, have you seen the latest news report? Do you know what's happening to me lately? And on and on it goes. And the general attitude is that God has forgotten all about them. Well, the people here had the same exact outlook This God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life theology just doesn't grab us, they'd say. Just like people today, we're tired of being promised deliverance. We're sick of serving a God we can't see. We need to feel loved, right? We need to have some kind of tangible, concrete evidence that God hasn't abandoned us. That's what they were saying. That's what people say now. And some of you can relate to that, can't you? Because we can't touch God and we can't see God. We often want some kind of concrete proof to assure us that we're not making this whole concept of God's love up. We're like the man I read about some time ago in a, uh, in a newsletter. And uh, the title of the article is, It's Never Too Late to Tell Them You Care. And for this one man... 1981 was a milestone year for him because he had reached the big 4-0, right? He could no longer retreat to the innocence of childhood or use youth and inexperience as an excuse for his actions. It was time to shoulder full responsibility for his life and to be the husband his wife longed for and the father his children so desperately needed. 
Now, up to this time, the article says, something was always missing from this man's confidence. There was a deep void in his heart that had plagued him since childhood. A gnawing emptiness that had badgered him since he was three years old. And that's how old he was in 1944, the year that his young heart was first broken, it says. Like all boys, he needed the love of his father and the mentoring of a man who believed in him cheering on his victories, to feel his father's carrying arms around him during his defeats and to listen to the whisper of his prayers by his bedside each night. The consolation of all those needs had been demolished by a Nazi mortar that fell next to his dad during his first day on the battlefield. Now his mother eventually remarried and his Stepfather loved him and did a noble job of trying to complete the process his deceased father had started, but something was always missing for this man. For mystifying reasons that no one completely understands, his inability to hear the words, I love you, from his deceased dad seemed to hold him back in his life. The 1981 marked a turning point for all of that. It had nothing to do with him turning 40. That event was merely a coincidence. It had everything to do with the visit that he made to his mother and stepfather's house and they were retiring and they were downsizing and they were moving to a smaller place with fewer responsibilities and he stopped by to help with the packing and to take one last look at his childhood home. And as his mother sorted and boxed up a lifetime of memories, she came upon this framed picture of her first husband, her son's father. It was an 8 by 10 portrait that he had made of himself in his army uniform and he sent it to her just before he shipped out for Europe. Within days after she had received it, he had been killed. And her son had seen this picture many, many times. It was, in fact, the main image that he conjured up when he thought of his father that he had never gotten to really know. They both studied this picture for a moment until his mother broke the silence and she said, here, son, I want you to have this. But as she handed it to him, he lost his grip on it and dropped it. And the cheap tin frame that had encased for 37 years, that picture broke at its corners and the glass shattered on the floor. That's when he saw the envelope. And there in the pile of glass was an unopened letter addressed to him from his father. It was dated just a brief time before he was called on to give his life for his country. And that letter contained the words that he had longed to hear from his father all of his life. In his father's handwriting, he read the words, the words that told him how much his father loved him, how proud his father was to have him for a son, how confident his dad was that God would empower this son to grow up to be a great man. All written in this letter. Now this whole new confidence blossomed in the heart of this 40-year-old son that's that day standing in an attic holding this letter. The doubts were now gone. He was indeed deeply loved by his earthly father and his heavenly father loved him enough to preserve a message for him in a, in, for a time in his life when he needed it the most. It's an amazing story. Well, let me tell you this. God loves you enough to preserve that message right here in the message of Malachi. 
And in this Bible, in your New Testament as well. God's bold love is undeniable. But if it is unbelievable to you, then you need to be reminded also of a third thing here. And that is that God's bold love is unconditional love. It's unconditional love. Look at verse 2 again. How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And by the way, this is a very tough text. I'm going to do my best. But the first thing Malachi does is point out the fact that God's love for this people was not predicated on what they did or didn't do for the Lord. I'm going to show you how that plays out here. It was not based on their merit. His choice of them as a privileged people was absolutely unsolicited and unmerited. It was merely a matter of God's sovereign decision. Lest they think that somehow they had received God's favor by some great quality inherent within them, Malachi brought them right back down to earth by pointing out the fact that as a nation, they were the objects of God's love because of his sovereign and gracious choice, period. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to show you a few verses that kind of bring this to bear. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Look at verse 37. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. Chapter 7, turn over to chapter 7 for a moment. Look at verse, beginning in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him 
to their faces to destroy them. And he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Chapter 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Chapter 23, verse 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loves you. Now this ultimate example of this was couched in the history of their ancestors, Esau and Jacob. By natural birthright, Esau, being the older twin and firstborn, should have inherited the blessing from his father and become the principal heir. But by divine choice, election, that's that fancy word, election, Jacob was the one that was favored by God. He, Jacob, inherited the blessing. Through Jacob, God's chosen people would endure. You can read all about that in Genesis chapter 25. God's bold love for his people is unconditional. It's simply by grace, undeserved, unearned. There is nothing we can do to cause him to love us. Nothing we can do. We can't bribe him with money. We can't seduce him with affection. We can't sucker him in with deathbed deals and profound promises or crocodile tears. His love for us is absolutely and exclusively by his sovereign choice. It's not conditioned by our worthiness or by our good looks or by our incredibly wonderful deeds. Because to be honest and thoroughly biblical with you, Our so-called righteous deeds are not as righteous as we think, are they? No one is righteous outside of a relationship with Christ. Not anyone. Read Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Jacob was no more righteous in the womb than Esau was. No more righteous. There was nothing more lovable about Jacob to God than Esau. The characters of the babies had nothing to do with God's choice. The fact is that God simply chose Jacob to carry on the line through which the Messiah would be born. It's that simple. Theologically, that's called election. Now, and it creates all kinds of problems in people's minds. Although it really shouldn't. Are we to limit God He is God after all, isn't he? Is he dependent upon the good or bad actions of men or women to make his decisions? He is God after all, isn't he? The fact that God has chosen to pour out his love on us and save us and that others do not enter into that same saving relationship with him is cause rather to make us fall down on our faces in amazement and his inconceivable grace toward us because none of us deserve it. Not any one of us deserves it. Now, don't misunderstand the doctrine of election. 
I know I can see the wheels turning in your minds and you're thinking, oh, what does that mean? That God chooses some and he condemns others? See, in Genesis, the account of God's sovereign choice of Jacob in no way implies the condemnation of Esau. I want to repeat that because you need to underscore this. In Genesis, the account of God's sovereign choice of Jacob in no way implies the condemnation of Esau. Both were born in sin. Both were disobedient by nature. Both were equally undeserving. The language is not comparative in that God loved Jacob more and Esau less. You got to follow me closely on this. It is a statement indicating God's sovereign choice from whom the Messiah would come. Remember that the statement in Malachi that God loved Jacob and hated Esau was written looking back on the history of the two. Okay? In Genesis 25, there is nothing that either states or implies any sovereign hatred of one and love for the other. You go and read it. You can look in context. The fact is, though, that although Jacob deceitfully attained the blessing of the inheritance, God had already chosen him to be the recipient anyway. He would have gotten it without manipulating it. God in no way condoned Jacob's sin in that. In fact, it later brought all kinds of unnecessary pain and problems in his life. But eventually, Jacob did follow the Lord fully. Now watch this. Esau and his descendants, on the other hand, continued in their unbelief and in their rebellion against God and against their brothers and were judged severely for their antagonism toward Jacob and Israel. Now read Malachi chapter 1 verse 3. But I have hated Esau and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I'm going to tear it down. And men will call them the wicked territory and people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What an incredible contrast we see here. Because Esau persisted in his sin, the descendants of Esau would follow suit and they would be judged severely for it. Their land here is called the wicked territory as opposed to the land of Judah, which is referred to by Zechariah as what? The holy land. That's Zechariah 2.12. Because of Edom's lack of repentance, and by the way, Edom is Esau. It's the descendants of Esau. Because of Edom's lack of repentance, they will be known as the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Literally, that term means to foam at the mouth. That's pretty indignant, isn't it? God's wrath upon Edom, the descendants of Esau, was not without warrant. 
The prophet Obadiah tells details the violence of Edom towards Israel. And in verse 10 of that book, it's a single chapter book, Obadiah, we find the charge upon which these words of Malachi are built. Obadiah 10 says this, quote, Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. You see, God's sovereignty never dispels man's responsibility. Even though God in his sovereignty chose Jacob to be the progenitor of the nation, both Jacob and Esau were held responsible to respond to God in obedience. They both had to respond in faith. They both had to respond in obedience. God's hatred of Esau, as it's stated here, is the result of God's hatred of Esau's sin, which he could never bring himself to repent of. You following me? All you got to do is read Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 15 to 17, and you'll find out that Esau never repented of his sin, though he sought for it with tears. But crocodile tears mean nothing to the Lord Repentance was not found in Esau's heart. There were tears, but no true repentance. He selfishly wanted God's blessing, but he did not want God. Does that sound like people today? Friends, this is so incredibly important to grasp. Because I literally tremble inside when I hear a Christian tell me, that they know what they're doing is wrong against God. They know that they're living sinfully and they have no intention of changing their behavior. Do you know how dangerous that line of thinking is? When a heart gets that callous toward God, it is more than just sinning against God's law, it is sinning against God's love. And do you realize what a precious gift God's love is? I'll I'll show you. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. I love that. Who through him are believers in God. See, if people, especially Christians, who are the objects of God's bold, undeniable, unbelievable, and unconditional love, refuse to give up their sin. In effect, what they're saying is that their sin is more precious to them than Christ himself. God's ultimate gift of love. That is exactly, exactly what J.R.R. Tolkien was illustrating when he created the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. You've seen what the ring did to him, right? My precious. What will your ring do to you? What is your precious? 
What is their precious out in the world? I challenge you. Read Hebrews chapter 12 this week and ask God to reveal the precious that he wants you to be rid of because, friends, our God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews 12, verse 29. God is opposed to and it separates himself from those who refuse the offer of his grace and stubbornly continue in the practice of sin. The expression we often hear is that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, right? That is truthful. But when someone hardens their heart and sin permeates a person's life to the point of their total rejection of God, and if the sinner dies in that state of rejection, it is the sinner which becomes the object of God's hatred. God cannot look approvingly upon sin, says Habakkuk 1, verse 13. It's just like Pharaoh who hardened his heart multiple times until they reached that point of no return and God finally hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's elected love, now what? This is the definitive statement I'm going to make here on this election thing. God's elected love by no means implies that certain people are elected to be the objects of his hate. Okay? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are alienated from God before we come to faith. But all of us have the same offer of the gift of life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the concept of God's grace so absolutely incredible to us. You know, if someone were to say to me, Pastor Russ, I have a major problem with Malachi chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Esau, I have hated. I would have to respond in the words of Dr. A.C. Gabeline, the gifted Hebrew Christian leader, who replied to the same question with these words, I have a greater problem with Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, which says, Jacob, I have loved. Or even more perplexing is where God says, I have loved you. You go to Romans chapter 9 and study that chapter to get some perspective on this. Because God can do whatever God wants to do. And we are by no means deserving of any kind of grace or salvation. From God, And yet he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, sent into earth to be born as a man, a little baby. Grew up to be a man and be crucified on a cruel cross and then raised from the dead so we could be saved. When we realize that we're the objects of his elected love, his bold love, how can we not be thoroughly humbled and overcome with gratitude and unspeakable joy and a willingness to do whatever God asks, whenever he asks it and wherever he asks it of us? And how can we not love every minute of living for him? How can we not enjoy every minute of serving him? If we become so indifferent to God's love for us that we challenge Him and make unreasonable demands on Him, loathe our service to Him and renege on our original commitment to Him and change the terms of the contract, which we cannot do, by the way, we need a good dose of reminder, don't we? A reminder of the major league grace 
that we, you and I, have received if you're in Christ. Here's kind of a tongue-in-cheek reminder. I love this story. Max Lucado wrote it in his book, The Grip of Grace. But it's a great reminder of the Major League grace that we've received. He said, for a few weeks during the spring of 1995, and many of you might remember this, professional baseball was a different game. The million-dollar arms were at home, the Cadillac bats were in the rack, and the contracted players were negotiating for more money. They went on strike. The owners determined to start the season threw open the gates to almost anybody who knew how to scoop a grounder or run out a bunt. These weren't minor leaguers, by the way. The minor leagues were also on strike. These were fellows who went from coaching Little League one week to wearing a Red Sox uniform the next. The games weren't fancy, mind you. Line drives rarely reached the outfield. One manager said his pitchers threw the ball so slowly the radar gun couldn't even clock them. A fan could shell a dozen peanuts in the time it took to relay a throw from the outfield. The players huffed and puffed more than the little engine that could. But my, did those players have a blast. They had fun. The diamond was studded with guys who played the game. Why? For the love of the game. When the coaches said run, they ran. When he needed a volunteer to shag flies, a dozen hands went into the air. They arrived before the park was open, greasing their gloves and cleaning their cleats. And when it was time to go home, they stayed until the grounds crew ran them off. They thanked the attendants for washing their uniforms. They thanked the caterers for the food they were supplied. They thanked the fans for paying the dollars to watch. The line of players willing to sign autographs was longer than the lines of fans wanting them. These guys didn't see themselves as a blessing to baseball, but baseball as a blessing to them. They didn't expect luxury. They were surprised by it. They didn't demand more playtime. They were just thrilled to play at all. And it was baseball again. Wasn't classy. But that was forgiven for the pure joy of seeing some guys play who really enjoyed the game. What made them so special? It was simple. They were living a life they didn't deserve. These guys didn't make it to the big leagues on their skill. They made it on luck. They weren't picked because they were good. They were picked because they were willing. And they knew it. Not one time did you read an article about the replacement players arguing over poor pay. I did read a story, he said, about a fellow who offered a hundred grand if some owner would sign him. But there was no jockeying for position, no second-guessing the management, no strikes, no lockouts, no walkouts. Heavens, these guys didn't even complain that their names weren't stitched on their jerseys. They were just happy to be on the team. And then he says this. He says, shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we be as well? Aren't we a lot like these players? We're living a life we don't deserve as Christians. We're not good enough to get picked, but look at us, suited up and ready to play. We're not sk- we weren't skillful, to, skillful enough to make the community softball league, but our names are on the greatest roster in history. 
Do we deserve to be here? Absolutely not. But will we trade in the privilege? Not for the world. For if Paul's proclamation is true, God's grace has placed us on a dream team beyond our imagination. Our past is pardoned and our future is secure. Listen to these words. You know them, but listen to them because they're a great reminder of what we've come into. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, and not as a result of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's love, it's bold love, it's undeniable love, it's sometimes unbelievable, always unconditional, but one more thing. It's unlimited. It's unlimited love. Verse 5, and then we'll wrap it up. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. You see, the people of Malachi's day had grown so weak in their spiritual relationship with God that they had walked so far away that they couldn't discern the pattern of his love that was blatant throughout their entire history. They were missing the whole point of why they had gone into captivity. Why had they gone into captivity? Instead of praising him for his grace, they complained about his lack of love. Instead of reviving their worship of him, they were repulsed by the monotony of their responsibilities. Tell me this doesn't relate to today. Instead of responding in humility... They removed themselves from his intimacy all because they doubted God's love for them. All they had to do was remember his promise that nothing could separate them from his love. Their promised destiny as opposed to Edom's future should have been clear proof. And it continues into today. Look at the Middle East conflict. It's still doing the same thing. The prophet said, open your eyes, look around, and one day you will see that the Lord's power is magnified even beyond Israel. This will be the conclusive answer to your own arrogant question, how have you loved us? So let me ask you as we close, are you questioning God's love for you? 
right now? Do you really believe that God loves you? Because open your eyes and look around. In just four months, almost to the day from now, you know what we're going to celebrate? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're thinking about Christmas today. Four months from now, almost to the day, we're going to be celebrating the real reason that we live, right? It's because Christ came and he died and was buried and he rose again and appeared to many as proof that he was who he said he was and is. Easter is the boldest expression of God's undeniable love for you that there is. The whole essence of that week-long remembrance is bound up in the simple statement God makes right here through Malachi. I have loved you. I love you. His love is a bold love. It's an undeniable love. It's an unconditional love. It's an unlimited love. Believe it. Because it goes beyond the borders of Israel right into the recesses of your hearts and my heart. It can forgive every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. Jesus is the absolute proof, positive, of God's love for you and me. He's the only precious that you and I need. So if you're looking for true love and acceptance, look to the only relationship that can truly fulfill it, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have shown us your love so clearly so clearly and and graphically, not only in the birth of your son Jesus, but also in his death and resurrection. And his coming again, his promise to come again to take his own to himself as he promised. We believe in that, Lord, and we look for it daily. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And in the meantime, as long as you tarry, may we operate out of a full knowledge of that love. And let us not rest until every last soul that is going to be in heaven is in heaven by preaching the gospel. Your means to everyone's salvation. For I ask it and pray it in the precious name of your son Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.